today we are continuing through the book of Galatians. And, and by way of reminder, as we make our way through this study, uh, where we are in history is about two decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And, and in these several decades between his death and resurrection and where we find ourselves now, the, the churches in Galatia have started to drift several degrees away from orthodoxy. And they, they, they've been making compromises and they find themselves stuck in their first major doctrinal crisis in the life of the church. And that's what Paul is writing to address. And this, this crisis that they find themselves stuck on is, is a pretty fundamental idea. It's who's in? Who gets to be in the family of God? And more importantly, how do we get there? How is it possible that we are saved? That is the doctrinal crisis that they are stuck on. And Paul had stayed with them for a while, and he planted these churches, and he preached to them. And he said simply, to answer that question, who's in and how do you get in, to all who repent and believe, it's by grace through faith. That's, that's the simple answer. And that took root. That lasted for a while until these teachers from Jerusalem made their way to southern Galatia and said, guys, we have much to discuss. First of all, don't listen to Paul. He doesn't know what he's talking about because he's not a real apostle. Paul is not a real teacher. In fact, we think he's just gone rogue and he's telling you what you want to hear. You know, he's kind of on this crusade of popularity, and so he's doing it the easy way by saying what you want to hear. That's number one. Second, Grace and faith are good, but they don't get you over the finish line. You have to add more to that. You have to add Torah observance, and you have to be circumcised. And then the third critique was, if, if, we, if we relax Torah observance, then we can't trust these pesky Gentiles. Immorality is just going to be off the charts, and it's, you know, sinfulness will be rampant. So don't relax Torah observance even for a moment. These were the critiques of the Jewish teachers who were coming from Jerusalem. And Paul wrote this letter to combat those critiques in some pretty colorful language and said, not true, guys, come on. In, in response to your first critique, Paul's not a real apostle. What are you talking about? Jesus appeared to me. I witnessed the risen Christ, and he called me. He sent me. And if you need more proof, both James and Peter, who are, you know, respected and approved teachers affirm what I'm teaching to you. So I don't know what they're talking about. And then in our texts today, Paul responds to their second critique, where they say, faith and grace are good, but don't get you over the line. So that's the critique that Paul addresses today. So now, hear a reading from Galatians 3 and 4. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you suffered so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? Does that God then give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? 
Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so then understand that those who believe are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who believe are blessed, along with Abraham the believer. For all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. Now it is clear no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous one will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith, but the one who does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Brothers and sisters, I offer an example from everyday life. When a covenant has been ratified, even though it is only a human contract, no one can set it aside or add anything to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his descendant. Scripture does not say, and to the descendants, referring to many, but to, and to your descendant, referring to one, who is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law that came 430 years later does not cancel a covenant previously ratified by God so as to invalidate the promise. For, inherit, for if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham through the promise. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... And you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to his promise. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are also an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us. We're listening. We trust you, Jesus. Attune our ears to the truth. Amen. So about a year ago, the fourth season of Stranger Things debuted. Uh, Now, I know many of you in the room are fans of the show. I certainly am. Uh, But for our purposes today, it doesn't matter whether you've seen it or not. All you need to know is that this show is set in the 80s and so wonderfully utilizes 80s music throughout the series. I mean, this show has rekindled my love for like the swelling synth that you can only find in tunes like Sunglasses at Night and Love is a Battlefield. Like, this is a a rich dive into 80s music, this show. And in the fourth season, in perhaps what was the most heroic and climactic moment of the entire season, uh, they, they score... Metallica's Master of Puppets. 
I don't know how many of you know that song. It's quite good. But Metallica debuted this song at a New Year's Eve concert in 1985, meaning that when this episode aired, Master of Puppets was 37 years old. And yet, after the episode, Master of Puppets became the number one downloaded song in America, this 37-year-old tune. And, and, you know, diehard fans of Metallica had a lot to say about this. They had big feelings related to the sudden popularity of this tune. And it was almost entirely negative, right? Like, like most of the fans would tweet something like, you can't just jump on the bandwagon now. I've been with Metallica since the beginning. Or, you know, other fans tweeted, like, I hate that Netflix made Metallica mainstream. Like, leave it alone. There was, there was one fan who even tweeted at the band and said, guys, I'm sorry for all of these new fake fans. And, and I learned this week that this, this attitude, this attitude of dissenting fans has a name. Like, it's that prevalent. It has its own name. In the music world, it's called gatekeeping. And a gatekeeper would be the kind of person who would, in response to Netflix playing Master of Puppets and everyone downloading that song the next day, say, you can't call yourself a fan of Metallica just because you like puppets. You need to go, you need to listen to all 11 albums, you need to watch all 43 music videos, you need to come up with your own top 10 list that's compelling, not just the hits, pulling from the deep tracks, and then maybe you can identify yourself as a fan. Maybe then you can claim that identity. And that's what a gatekeeper does. They make sure that people aren't claiming an identity before they've deserved it, right? Before it's been properly earned. And, and it's funny, you know, the point gatekeepers, but it's not so uncommon a thing, right? Like, we all do it in different ways. You know, we live in Denver. How many times have you heard people say, you can't just watch the Broncos when they're good, like, you have to suffer through the bad years, too, and then you can call yourself a fan. Many, many bad years. Many, many bad years. Or, you know, you can't call yourself a coffee lover if you only drink Starbucks. That's insane. You have to, you know, understand the small batch roasters, know the difference between Guatemalan and Ethiopian, and then you can call yourself a coffee lover. We do this with so many things. You can't say you're blank until you've done blank. Then I'll know you've earned it. And that's what's happening in the entire book of Galatians. That's what's been happening in the churches of Galatia. You know, these, these leaders and teachers from Jerusalem are coming down and saying, you can't say you're in the family of God just because Paul told you about grace and faith. Like, that's neat, but you need to do more. Like, I've been around since the beginning. I was circumcised as a baby. I've devoted my life to Torah observance. I'm in the family of God. You can't say that you're in now. You bandwagon Gentiles, not even willing to go through the pain of circumcision. You're getting in on such easy terms. And these Jewish teachers are convinced you're not real fans. And Paul isn't a real teacher. And these gatekeepers, these gatekeeping teachers have started to find an audience in Galatia. They're starting to have their way and are kind of convincing the masses that they aren't, in fact, in. 
Theirs, theirs is a cheap version of fandom. Theirs is a convoluted style of being in the family. It's not full-fledged membership. It's not, it, it's not real. And so this, this mentality, the gatekeepers finding their way, is what Paul used our text today to combat. And you probably noticed, you know, I gave it some color when I read it, but he comes out of the gates hot, right? You, you foolish Galatians. Who has cast a spell on you? It's quite the departure from the way he started the letter, you know, in chapter one. My dear brothers. You know, it's as, almost as if Paul was writing this letter. He had been getting more and more amped up as he was kind of, you know, sit, like seeing clearly what was going on. And by the time we get to Galatians 3, we get, you foolish Gentiles. Who has cast, you foolish Galatians. Who has cast a spell on you? Why would he be so harsh? Well, for a few reasons. First, it's implicit in the text that these Galatians are actively choosing against their better judgment and using nonsense rationale. Well, well, how do we know this? What do I mean? So in in the Greek language, there are two kinds of fools, or there's two kinds of foolish behavior. Uh, One would be described with the Greek word moros, which is where we get our word moron. Which just means, you know, you lack the knowledge necessary. You know, I, I do not have adequate knowledge to fix a jet engine. So in that regard, I am moronic. I just don't, I don't have the necessary knowledge. That's, that's moros. That's that kind of fool. That's not what Paul is calling them. Paul is saying you are aniatas, which is a different kind. That means you have the knowledge necessary. You have the knowledge to understand all of this, but you're choosing not to use your powers of perception. You know, you're frustrating your own sense of reason. You're disregarding your better sense, and you're just adopting a weak argument because somebody is telling you to. You know, it's the ultimate, if your friend jumped off a cliff, would you too? Like, you know better. You have the power of perception. You have all of the necessary information, and you're doing nothing with it. That's the kind of fool that Paul is talking about here. And we, and, and we don't know uh, the exact arguments that these teachers were making, but we do know that Paul sees them as incredibly weak arguments. But for some reason, they're just being mindlessly adopted time and time and time again. You know, it would it, it, be like if a person of influence let's say Dave Rose, said, there's no downside to starting a fire with gasoline. And I'm like, okay, well, then it must be completely safe. You'd wonder, like, did you turn your brain off? Like, what's happening? Of course there are downsides to this. All you have to do is think about it for a second, and you could name a half dozen of them. What do do you mean it's completely safe? Like, you know better. You must have just turned your brain off. So Paul says, guys, let's think about this for a second. Let's turn our brains back on, shall we? And the rest of chapter 3 is him laying out his arguments once again for why salvation is by grace through faith. And he points to their experience. He points to scripture. And then he brings it all home with just some basic logic. So first, kind of alluding to their experience, he says, you've received the Holy Spirit. Right? Like they had, they had their own Pentecost 
type experience. And he would say, you've been, you've been witnessing and performing miracles. How do you think that came to be? Did the Spirit come to you because you at long last attained appropriate behavior? Or did the Spirit come to you when you believed? Also, you know Christ has been crucified. You know Christ has been resurrected. This is well documented. You have many people among you who witnessed this. What do you think that was for? If righteousness and being into the family of God was possible by a thing you already had, the law, then what was Christ's death necessary for? Perhaps the mere fact that he came to die evidences that righteousness needed to be purchased for you. Second, he points to scripture. And he talks about Genesis 15, where the text is pretty clear. When Moses wrote, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, the father of these Jewish teachers from Jerusalem, he got in not by activity, not by ethnicity, but by belief. And well, if that just doesn't do it for you, well, the prophet Habakkuk, who's also, you know, rather important to you, was clear on the subject as well, saying that the righteous will live by And now this is, a, this is a really key poll. It's important he's making this argument because that was, that was a chief critique of the Jewish teachers who, who were saying, Gentiles, you can't possibly be sons of Abraham. You have, you have no ethnic connection to these people. You have no ethnic connection to Abraham. You're not in his line. So maybe the only way you can become proper sons of Abraham is if you follow the family rules. But again... Paul then takes the time to say, remember, remember, it was neither ethnicity nor activity that justified Abraham. It was faith. Thus, the true sons of Abraham are those who share his faith, and not for nothing, but the prophets corroborated to the same. Plus, Let's not forget that at the heart of the promise that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15 were the words, and all the nations will be blessed through you. Like that's the promise, blessing reaching to all of the nations. And this promise of blessing and inheritance, Paul reminds us, came 430 years before the giving of the law, which kind of then transitions him into his final argument from just basic logic. He's like, guys, in the, in the debate of does the Torah kind of help you understand the promise or does the promise help you understand the Torah? I don't know. Maybe let's give credence to the one that came half a millennia prior, right? And not for nothing, but for the majority of those 430 years between the giving of the promise and the giving of the law, the people of God were slaves. So much of the Torah is helping guide these the people of God teaching them how to be a free people teaching them how to act as the people of God it's not a prerequisite for becoming the people of God and so then Paul pulls these three things together their experience alluding to scripture and then just basic logic what came first the promise of the law it says when you hold these three premises together there's only one valid conclusion and it's this in 311 now it is clear 
no one is justified by the works of the law. We are in people because of Jesus's gracious work, not ours, and we respond to his faithfulness with faith. That's the gospel. Well, now, I said he was frustrated with them for two reasons, right? One was they were mindlessly, against their better judgment, accepting these really weak arguments. Yeah, that would not frustrate anyone. What was the second reason he was frustrated with them? This was all about ego. For them and for the Jewish teachers, this was all about ego. When talking about the attitude that these Jewish teachers had towards the Galatians, he said this, and Bailey, you can throw it up. They court you eagerly. They court you eagerly, but for no good purpose. They want to exclude you so that you would seek them eagerly. In, in other words, like these, these gatekeepers, they care nothing for you. They don't care about you. They're buoying their own reputations by getting you to follow them. And for some reason, beyond my understanding, you're sacrificing your spiritual convictions for the approval of people who will never care about you. Thank goodness we don't worship celebrities, right? And it reminds me of a, a character in one of my, my favorite shows who said, yeah, I dropped out of high school because I thought the band Radiohead would be impressed. Like, they're never going to know. They're never going to care about you. It, it, it's a tragic irony that we often find ourselves in that we sacrifice spiritual conviction for the approval of somebody who will never think anything of you. And this is the ugliest side of celebrity worship. I know why it's such a trap for us, but, but it is. And we, and we tend to do this. And that's why I think Paul reminded them a chapter prior. And it was so important that he said this words. I'm doing this for the approval of God alone, not, not of men. He, he, he's reminding them that these teachers and I are not motivated by the same thing. Who would you rather follow? Somebody who cares nothing for you but just is interested in bolstering their own reputation or someone who is intent on communicating the gospel of God and I don't care what you think about me in the meantime. This was just all about ego. Last week, Mike used the illustration of the cool kid table in the cafeteria and just this natural draw that we have to it and out. It vexes me greatly that I wasn't able to come up with a better illustration than that. So I'm just going to have to borrow his for the time being. Um, he's not here. Nobody tell him I'm doing this. It's unlikely he'll listen to the recording anyway. So if anyone asks, I came up with a really good illustration. that nothing to do with his. Anyway, this, this table of ours, the church, it's identified as a place we want to be, right? And a lot of us feel like we need to keep our place here. And around this table, we have both gatekeepers and those who are really intent on appeasing the gatekeepers. And I'm not sure if one of those two you identify with more, but I think both are really, really threatening. Here's, here's what I mean. The gatekeeper, you know, the, the Metallica fans who sell 
everyone else that they're not real Metallica fans. These are the kind of people that are motivated by pride so often and wonder how it came to be that they're surrounded by such undeserving attendance. And then those intent on pleasing them become so fixated on right vernacular and mimicking whatever it is that they're doing that they're just trying to buy their way in with what's perceived to be acceptable behavior. And what this does, if you fall too heavily into either of these camps, is it seriously sours worship. It kills any chance of unity. It ignores Jesus' activity and his grace. And in fact, it just ignores Jesus altogether. It pulls all of our attention away from the person of Jesus onto everyone else who's seated around the table. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a really compelling way for describing both kinds of people at the table. In, in his book, Screwtape Letters, uh, the demon Screwtape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, describing each type of these Christians. And first to the gatekeeper, he says, what he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness, it's all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. He's earned his way in. He thinks he's run up a very favorable credit in God's ledger by allowing himself to be converted. Much of spirituality after that is just grandstanding and rhythms of worship become little more than virtue signaling. And, you know, to use my own colorful language, that's pretty abhorrent to God, honestly. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus said as much. You know, he describes this Pharisee in Luke who stood by himself and prayed, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. My rhythms of worship have built me up a favorable credit in your ledger, I would imagine. And so I am in a place where I can say, thanks for not making me as bad as them. I'm actually rather, I'm rather good. And it's to this Pharisee that Jesus reminds us with a pretty stark warning. If you're intent on exalting yourself, you're the very one who will be humbled, I promise. Well, like I said, Lewis also describes the believer kind of on the other side, intent on appeasing the gatekeeper at the table. When Screwtape writes to Wormwood describing this type of person, he says he is anxious to imitate Christian quality. He does not dream how much of his conversation, how many of his opinions are recognized by them all as mere echoes of their own. Still, the idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in a very of being in on a secret is very sweet to him. To this to this kind of person, just you know, being being at the table is is the ends. That's that's the ultimate good. It's not it's not the means by which you get close to the one sitting at the head of the table. Just being at the table is is fine kind of being incognito and accepted by those who would point at you and call you a adultering tax collector, gaining their approval, that's fine. That's all, that's all I require. Now, now, why am I saying all this? 
right? Like I thought Galatians 3 and into 4, the whole, the whole point was to prove that salvation is by grace through faith. Why, why this detour into how we relate to one another? Well, because Paul knew, you know, mixed metaphors, I suppose, that the way we relate to others sitting at the table matters greatly for our spiritual convictions. You know, he, he introduces a new humanity inside the kingdom of God where relationships are transformed. You know, it, there's a reason and perhaps the most well-known passage of this text, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. He's saying you all got to the table the same way. And it, it wasn't because you deserved it. It wasn't because you listened to all 11 albums first. And it wasn't because you parroted your way into getting one of a seat, into getting a seat. Your ethnic, your social, your gender differences, they mean, they mean nothing. None of you, none of them put you at a greater advantage or made you more deserving of a seat here. So, when Metallica heard that their fans were reacting the way they had to their new sudden popularity, uh, they, they had a response. You know, to that one fan who I'd mentioned earlier who tweeted at the band, sorry for all these new fake fans, Metallica tweeted back and said, don't be sorry. Everyone is welcome in the Metallica family. If they like Master of Puppets, chances are they'll find plenty of other songs to get into. Now, I can't be sure, but I would wager that Metallica has never been compared to Christ in a sermon before, so do with that what you will. But what they were saying pretty closely resembles what Jesus is about, and it's this. If you sincerely want in, if you sincerely want a seat at the table, there's a seat for you. I've saved one for you. First Peter tells us that the Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some regard slowness, but he is being patient toward you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Guys, there is but one proper gatekeeper and he bought your way in. And he said, repent and believe and have a seat. Repent and believe you're given your chair. Repent and believe alongside other repenters and believers. Guys, I, I think let's not waste the gift that is the reminder of coming to this table together every week. There's, there's a reason we don't stay in our seats and privately take the meal where we are. We come to this table together. Gatekeepers and anxious alike, you all got here the same way. Repent and believe alongside repenters and believers. He is the one proper gatekeeper. And he bought your way in. Let's pray together. Jesus, forgive us uh, for thinking we are more deserving of this than others. Forgive us 
for sacrificing our spiritual convictions uh, to get others' approval. It's so silly. Remind us that we are repenters and believers alongside other repenters and believers, feasting at a table that you prepared. Anchor us to the gospel and banish all else. In Jesus' name we pray.